my message. I didn't know what to put down, but I want, just came up with a couple words I want to say, use, and it's an eternal difference. And I'm going to talk to you about a story that Jesus told, and we're going to unravel some of the truths in that story and understand what was going on when he taught it. So if you'll turn to Luke, the 16th chapter, we'll turn to the Lord in prayer and look at this story that Jesus gave us. Father, we thank you again for the great smiles we see this morning and, and the great uh, day we had yesterday, but that's yesterday. Today's a new day. We need you in a great way today. We need to have your Holy Spirit speak through your word that you would give us what we need to enlighten our hearts and our minds into what you have for us individually as our walk with you is a daily personal walk. So guide us today in a special way. Give us what we stand in need of to teach us more about you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, I'm going to read this. I do want to make a statement first. Listen to my statement. It says, nowhere in this portion of Scripture that Jesus gives us today does it mention that it's a parable. Now, a lot of times the Bible say Jesus spoke this parable, and then it gives the parable, and we study it as a parable. A parable is a story. It could be true. It doesn't have to be true. But it teaches a thought that Jesus is trying to drive home Almost always, it's the last line of that parable that tells you what was in that parable. But this one doesn't say parable anywhere in it. And as we read this, it sounds like it could even be a true story. And even a story that Jesus was telling to the folks that was listening to him that day of a reality that he knew about. So keep that in mind as we read this particular parable or story. It's not a parable. It doesn't say so anyway. And we're going to break in in Luke 16, starting in verse 19. And it says, There was a certain rich man which was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. And there was a certain beggar named Lazarus which laid at his gate full of sores. And desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table... Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. And it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. The rich man, died, rich man also died and was buried. And in hell he lifted up his eyes, being in torments, and seeing Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom, he cried and said, Father, Abraham, have mercy on me. And send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger into water and cool my tongue. For I am in torments in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember thou that in thy lifetime receivest good things. And likewise, Lazarus, evil things. But now he's comforted and thou art tormented. And besides all this, between... Us and you, there's a great gulf fixed. So they which that which they so that they which would pass from hence to you cannot. Neither can uh, they pass to us that would come from thence. Then he said, I pray thee therefore, Father, that thou would send him to my father's house. 
For I have five brethren, that he may testify unto them that they also come, that they, lest they also come, I can't even read, lest they also come into this place of torment. Abraham saith unto him, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, Nay, Father Abraham, but if one went unto them from the dead, they will repent. And he said unto them, If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. Sometimes when I get to reading, I already know what it's supposed to say, and I kind of get my my memory reading instead of my eyes reading. But uh, the story is a story that Jesus taught his listeners there. And in verse 19, we'll go back and look through some of the things that stand out in this. He describes this fellow as a rich man. Now, rich is a relative term. Amen? Some of us are fairly rich. I heard one time, now it's been a few years back, and I know inflation and everything has changed since then, and it hasn't been that long ago, that if you made $50,000 a year, you were in the top 5% of income makers in the world. Not in America, in the world. Wow. That kind of puts a different perspective on things. Now, you're not very high as far as the USA is concerned, but in world terminology, man, you got a lot of money. You would be considered rich to 95% of the world around you if you made $50,000 a year. Well, if he's telling this as a true story, then why not tell of the rich man's name? Number one, could be that this is a recent story. Now, I'm just trying to draw some conclusions here to help us understand this story, but he didn't give the rich man's name. But here he describes him, and it could be because if he had gave his name, some of the people that were listening might have, from memory, have known that fella in the past. Probably would have not had a good judgment in their opinion of this fellow once they heard the entire story. It could be that if the name was given and he had five brothers, verse 28 said he had five brothers, they could warn them so they didn't follow in his footsteps. But that's not the way God deals with people as individuals. These brothers uh, would only seek to repent because of the testimony of their brother rather than repent because of the Holy Spirit's conviction on their life. In other words, they would repent from a wrong and selfish motive. Now, God can distinguish between them <coughs> And he knows how to sort all that out. I'm not in charge of eternity. So I don't try to judge who gets in and who doesn't. I just try to preach the word of God. <coughs> Sorry. I can't answer for Jesus even in this story. But I can definitely see why the man would remain nameless. Okay? Just like the thief on the cross, it remains nameless. One of them said, Jesus, 
call down angels and get us out of this predicament. If you're the son of God, you could do that. No doubt he could have. That's not the will of God, and he didn't do that. The other thief said, man, mind your manners. What's the matter with you? Are you an idiot or what? Don't talk to him like that. Besides, we deserve to be on these crosses. We did the, the crime. Now we got to do, if you would, pay the penalty. And now we see him as, if you would, renamed, would uh, remain uh, nameless. And if Jesus had called him by name and said, Dude, today you'll be with me in paradise. Guess what? They probably, at that time, had records that would have shown who those two guys were that did deserve to be on the cross, and they definitely had records on the guy in the middle of the cross, right? They knew who he was. They could have deducted down from that who that guy was. And then they could, if you would, look to him as to a standard of how to get to paradise. That's not what God's plan is, amen? So he remained nameless in Luke 23 and 43. So Jesus did note in the story that this rich man was clothed in purple and fine linen. Now, I know rich men in that day and time was known by how they dressed. Amen? They always wore purple as a sign of royalty. You'll see that even in a lot of churches today. They'll have a cross and they'll have a purple piece of garment or something hanging on that cross and it's supposed to symbolize the fact that when the thief or when the Roman soldiers crucified him, they put on him a, a purple robe, if you would, to mock him about being the king of the Jews. But when they nailed him to the cross, they took that robe off and cast lots for it and Jesus's personal attire. And it says that he wore fine linen. That's expensive stuff. Amen. I don't know whether they shop at the Gap or where they go to get this fine linen or the purple stuff. I don't know which store they go to, but it's expensive. And so it would be something that would make someone stand out in their day and time in the first century if you was just walking down the street and met someone wearing fine linen and clothed in purple. You automatically thought, that's a rich guy. He is better off than the average Joe, or at least better off than the beggar that's laying on the gate, uh, letting the dogs lick his swords, begging for something to eat, maybe holding up a cardboard sign, I'm homeless, or whatever. <clears throat> but when we think of rich men's attire, that's what would be thought of even in the first century. They would recognize that. Now, I don't want you to jump to the conclusion that Jesus is saying everyone that you think is rich is going to hell because that's not what Jesus is teaching at all. Amen. Amen. So all rich men don't go to hell. Now, he's saying that your attire um, is, is not what determines your destiny either. So you don't look at how much money in the bank or how you dress to determine where you're going to spend eternity. 
And I've heard it said by those that are on both ends of the spectrum when they teach about how people dress. And I got an example wrote down here. If you want to look at both ends of the spectrum, I look at one end of the spectrum how they dress as, well, you might want to say the Amish. And then you can look at the other end of the spectrum and we got nudists. So we can't go by how they dress to tell what's going on. I don't have the privilege of telling you how to dress. I can tell you the Bible says we need to dress decent and modest and not effort flauntingness or however on display kind of thing. That's the only thing I have to say about it. I don't have the authority from scripture or anything else to say what's godly or not godly in your life. The Holy Spirit has to tell you that. And I can tell if you would by looking at your life, how close the Holy Spirit has spoken to you about the way you dress. Huh, how about that? Well, that's just part of being a pastor. That just comes with the territory. But we can look at both ends of the spectrum, and somewhere in there we can find that attire is not a requirement for your eternal destination. Your heart and your spirit's condition before God most definitely is. The description of the man would probably describe most of Jesus's challengers in his day and time. Did you know Jesus had problem with some of the people around him? You better say you reckon. Amen. Some of the kings, Pharisees, scribes, Chief priests, high priests were the ones that gave Jesus, if you would, the most issues or problems or circumstances and questioned him the most as to his legality of his teachings and other things in their life. And all of them would have fit in this category of the attire that they wore when they were in public. But even some of them had a heart for Jesus Christ and the things of God. The examples of that we have is Nicodemus. He was one of them. Man, he came to Jesus at night and wanted to know how to be born again. We know about Joseph of Arimathea. He also was in that category. And yet even they, those two guys, wanted to take care of the body of Jesus Christ after he was crucified. They came to Pilate, asked for the body, and made sure it got properly uh, taken care of and put in the tomb and it was two people that had more money than they did than they maybe have needed and not necessarily um, the, the disciples who probably couldn't rub nickels together but here we have and we're looking at these things as to what we see in it now about riches let me just deviate a little bit here and then I'll come back to this text but about riches I want to read to you what the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to write to help young pastor Timothy uh, so that he'd be able to uh, do a better work in the church where he was pastored at in Ephesus. Let me read to you in 1 Timothy. I'll just read this one and I'm not even going to comment on it much and then I'll go back. 1 Timothy 6, 6 through 12. Again, the riches don't qualify or disqualify anyone from eternity but they do set up a different set of challenges 
in the hearts of those that have riches. Let me read this to you in 1 Timothy, reading in verse 6. But godliness with contentment is great gain. So if you're godly, you're already richer than all the people you think in this world, like Elon Musk and all of them have, and I'm not judging his spirit. But he does have a lot of money. Amen. Verse 7, for we brought nothing into this world. Even Job said that. Naked I came and naked I'll leave. Amen. It, we brought nothing into this world and it's certain we'll carry nothing out. And having food and raiment, let us therewith be content. But they that will be rich fall into temptations and a snare and many foolish and hurtful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For, or the word for, verse 10, what's, that's a study word, isn't it? What's it mean? Because the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveted after, they've erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. But thou, o man of God, Flee these things and follow after righteousness. That's what will get you through to heaven. Amen? Godliness, faith, love, patience, and meekness. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life whereunto thou art called and hast professed a good profession before many witnesses. That's what Paul's admonition to his mentoring uh, younger pastor growing up through the ranks was to them. So he want to make that the uh, point there in verse 10. He says, for the love of money. Now, not money, the love of money. All right? That's what we need to be uh, all in uh, agreement about this particular teaching. The term all evil in that particular uh, thing says, for the love of money is the root of all evil. The word translated all there in Greek doesn't mean that every evil comes because of money. That's not what it means. It means all kinds of evil. Put the word kinds in there because all the other translations did. For some reason, the King James Version doesn't put that in there. So we need to understand that there's a lot of problems comes with money. Amen? I haven't, I did study this again. It's been a long time ago. And the reason I did back then is because I have a sister in Illinois. And she was, uh, ran into this guy that hit the lottery. Big lottery. He was, he said he had to move from where he lived to Florida. She saw him in Florida. Was admiring the car he was driving at a gas station. She said, he said, I got this because I hit the lottery. And I had to move from where I lived down to Florida where nobody knows me because everybody was my friend once I hit the lottery. And he says, now I'm struggling to make ends meet because it's recorded or statistically it says that about 90% of everybody that hits what we would call a big lottery files for bankruptcy in less than three years. There are a lot of problems come with too much 
money. Amen? So be glad for what you got. Use it wisely. Use it the way God would have you to use it, and everything will seemingly work out. But I want you to know it's a very big problem. Evil has many roots. Money's just one of those roots, even though it's a big root, and it'll cause you many problems if you don't get a handle on the money you do have or are given. Amen? I'm thankful God trusts me with the little bit I get. Amen? I'm glad to be a millionaire, but I hope I'm handling it right because I give and help and do, and I'm thankful my bills are paid. That's all I care about. Amen? All right. So let's go back now. Back into, I wrote down 17, but it should be Luke 16. Verse 19, the rich man here talking about said that he lives sumptuously. Do any of you live sumptuously? Do you even know what that word means? I had to look it up myself because I don't live sumptuously. I don't think I do because I don't know what the word means. So I looked it up. It means live in luxury. That's what the word means. And this time that it appears in the Bible is the only time in the entire Bible that this word is used. But Jesus knew what sumptuous living meant because what did he have? The shirt on his back, basically. Uh, is basically all he owned. He didn't own a home or multiple of homes and one on the seashore and one in the mountains and one for a getaway and one, you know, in the cabin and he didn't have all that. He lived, uh, if you would, the life that God put him here for. Now this is, uh, like I say, the only time it's in there and it means you live in beyond your means. You know there are people that can do that even if they don't have what we would call riches. So live within what you have. Again, luxury was not the determining factor as to this man's eternal estate. It was just something that came with the territory. Jesus never states, nor does the Bible ever confirm that he went to his destination in eternity because he lived sumptuously or because he was rich or because of what those riches meant to him. Therefore, don't all your rich friends go and sell everything and go live homeless in the homeless camps in poverty, thinking you're going to get to heaven quicker than someone else. That's not the steps you're supposed to take. What I have seen of those that live that way does not witness a lot of righteousness to me. We, you may not know this, but there are homeless camps in Hamilton. Oh, I see all of you shaking heads. I guess you guys are more up on the news than I thought you was. But uh, um, I went to, Bonnie and I went through police academy training. And they were telling us of homeless camps. And the police are very, very careful when they go to these places because those, I guess, the drug users, junkies, I don't know what term to use, have so many needles that once they use them, they throw them on the ground. And a lot of people get hurt by the needles that they've thrown away just walking through, if you would, the area where these homeless take up their abode. 
Well, we need to get a hold of them, if you would, and try to help them out somehow to get them beyond that condition and get their minds into an eternal uh, thinking pattern so they can get their heart and life straightened out with God. Now look at verse 20, the next verse. And Jesus, uh, here in this verse, does name the person. Calls him Lazarus, a certain beggar named Lazarus. Lazarus was a very common name. There's a lot of Lazaruses in there. And then, of course, we know uh, a Lazarus from the Bible, and it was in John the 11th chapter that Jesus was a friend of Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. They had a nice house in Bethany. It describes it. They often had Jesus and all his disciples over to their place for dinner. That's all in John the 11th chapter. So they weren't the beggars. This Lazarus is not that Lazarus. Amen? Because that Lazarus, um, he was pretty well off. And it's not the one he called out of the tomb in John 11, 43 and 44. Amen? So we know that it, that's not the case because of the difference of how Jesus is describing the two of them. Um, so here we go. I can uh, tell um, many of the beggars that are in bad shape physically because of the long time, and in the long time of being a beggar, some people just tend to lose their identity. Amen? A lot of people seem to just walk past them and don't even notice them. Amen? Well, that's what a beggar, if you would, sometimes is like that. Sometimes I wonder about the people in the homeless camps. Do they have family? Well, they've got to have some kind of family, don't they? Uh, none of us go through life just appearing and disappearing, you know. Of course they got family. Do they have names? Yeah, probably not until they get in trouble. Amen? But of course they've got names. Amen? And then I have to ask, why do they stay there in these homeless camps? Who knows? I don't know the answer to that. I do know that if they knew Bonnie, they wouldn't be homeless very long. And my house would be pretty crowded. She'd want to take all of them home with her and give them a nice meal and some better looking clothes and help them out any way she could. That's just her nature. Amen? And I have to put a throttle on her because I can't save everybody in the world. If the government can't dress them all and take care of them all, I don't think I can. Amen? And I know if God moves on me to step in and take care of someone in some of those conditions, well, we'll just do our best as God points, just like Brother Steve said about Ananias talking about Saul in Damascus. Amen. It wasn't what Ananias wanted to do, but when God says go, you go. And if God said to us, go to that homeless camp and, and do what you can to help them, yep, I'd be the first one. I'd be careful where I walk. I'd be careful what I say, and I'd be careful about who walks up behind me, you know, because of the reputation of some of those places. But if God said to do it, I'd just have to suck it up and go that way, wouldn't I? Amen. So in verse number 21, it goes and tells the fate of Lazarus, of what he was like in this life. Number one, he desired the crumbs from the rich man's table. How about that? What's that say about him? Physically, he is malnutritioned. 
He probably was hungry, to say the least. Um, it's one thing to, to ask for somebody to give you a handout of something to eat, but to get the crumbs that fall off the table, that's pretty much minuscule meal, to say the least. And then he says, number two, that the dogs licked his sores. That lets me know that in his physical condition, he was in need of medical attention. Amen. If you have sores, I know when I had a dog and I, I cut my leg one time and it had a, a sore on it and uh, we lived in the trailer park at the time and that's not got anything to do with uh, riches or not riches. But uh, my dog, whenever I turned my back, he'd want to come up behind me. If I was sitting at the table or sitting at the cat, he'd want to come up and want to lick my sore. I don't know why. I guess he liked me. He wanted to see me better. Amen? I, it's just that if you have a dog, trust me, if you have a, a sore like that, he will want to take care of it. Amen? My dog wanted to. Amen? He, I treat him better than I did the doctor. Never mind. Anyway, but in his phys physical body, it was deteriorating right along as his life was slowly slipping away from him from malnutrition, bad health, bad, everything around him was not the situation he would desire to be satisfied in this life. But then, verse 22 states the fact that everyone eventually has to face. We all succumb to death. But in this story, one death was told and if you would a celebrity or a celebratory way, and the other death was not so well described. In the case of Lazarus, the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. What a relief. He was suffering so badly. He was in bad shape everywhere. What a victory he was receiving as they carried him across the finish line. What a welcoming thought as you enter eternity to know you're carried by angels right into Abraham's bosom. Amen? Somebody's loving arms that he had no one on this side of eternity to wrap loving arms around him seemingly. Now, on the other hand, the scripture says the rich man died and was buried. Pretty blunt. Amen? Sounds ordinary at best. Sounds pretty final. Sounds kind of lonely. And certainly, it was without the sumptuous surroundings. Eternity's distinctions are very notable, verse 23 tells us. Amen? In verse 23, it talks about in hell. That word hell is the Greek word that other places in the Bible is translated grave. Amen? 
So we need to understand in this case, in this particular scenario, Jesus knew what he was talking about, but he used that term in the Greek to describe what's going on. You could say that people in the grave, if you would, um, however you want to see that, that's their body. Okay? So if their body's in the grave, their soul and their spirit's somewhere else. Amen? All of us have done that. Amen? Have you ever been in the same room with somebody when they, if you would, passed, took their last breath, their heart beat, beat for the last time, and what did you notice about them? Nothing. They just... Nothing. You didn't see their spirit. You didn't see their soul leave. All you saw was a lifeless body. Amen? That lifeless body, um, if that person chooses to, and in some cases um, they choose not to, uh, whatever, for eternity, they want to do different things with their body. But for the most part, they end up in a grave. Amen? And that's what the word hell or Hades would mean in some cases. But in this case, Jesus wanted to know he's not talking about the body. He's talking about the man. Because when you go into eternity, the body does go to the grave, whether you're right with God or not right with God. You still have to put, even Lazarus, more than likely, ended up in a grave somewhere. Amen? But in this story, Jesus doesn't say that they are in the same condition. They're actually in two different, um, extremely different conditions. Amen? So your eternal place means a whole lot more. And at death, your soul and body are released, or your soul and spirit are released from your body, and therefore you face eternity as that. To learn more about that, I'm not going to take time today, but you can go read 1 Corinthians, the 15th chapter. Paul goes into great detail about what happens when your body and your spirit separate at death. Amen? I also want to say, based on the story and other scriptures, that there is a consciousness in life after death that God has laid some boundaries on. Verse 26 tells us that. There's a great gulf fixed between the two places where these two individuals are after their bodies are in the grave. Amen? And you're not a, uh, permitted, or they're not, and I assume I'm not, or no one else is permitted, because otherwise Abraham would have been telling us a story. You're not a permitted to travel from one side to the other. Amen? You just can't say, well, I know I deserve to be in hell, but I deserve a vacation every once in a while, so maybe I'll just go spend the winter in... Uh, uh, no, you don't get to choose. You don't get to go the other way. Amen? One thing I want you to notice here, that there are eternal differences between the two, along with the idea of knowing where you are. In verse number 24, you're able to be discomforted or comforted by your surroundings. Even to the point where the rich man now is asking for mercy. Hmm. Nowhere in this 
in, is there a place in Scripture where the love of God, the mercy of God, or the grace of God is available to anyone after death? If you want those things to be a part of your life, not only in this life, but the next life, you have to put your application in for it now. You have to repent and walk with God now and be the righteous person he's called you to be if you want those things to be a benefit to you, not only in this life, but the life to come. I kind of look at God's mercy as kind of like what you go to the grocery store with when you cut out the coupons. And you get in the grocery line. And you go to check out. And you give them the coupon. And you get the reduced rate until they run it across there and say, oop, no good, it's expired. <laughs> that happens, don't it? No wonder we can't use it. It's expired, just a piece of trash to throw away. That's the way I look at God's mercy when this rich man put in for it, but it had already expired. And he didn't get the mercy because he waited too long to put in for it. Amen? So don't wait too long to use your coupon for mercy. You need it before it expires and before you meet your eternal destination. Verse 27 says, He, and of course it means there, the rich man of the story, I pray thee, and then it uses the word therefore. What's therefore mean? Based on what I just told you, here's the conclusion. Amen? That's our study word. So he's saying in this text that I would like for you to send Lazarus to my father's house. But before death, Lazarus was an eyesore at his gate. And it, it was there, that gate was there to keep Lazarus out. Now, he's begging for Lazarus to go speak to his five brethren about their fate. You see, your circumstances sure do affect your thinking patterns both here and there. Also, note, Lazarus doesn't have any complaints now about his circumstances. Amen. He seems to be pretty cushy, pretty happy. Amen. He's not even considering the mercy rule. He knows mercy has already been applied and his, eternity, his eternal state has already been settled. Amen? So in verse 29, Amen. Sorry, you can't go back. But your brothers will have hope if they listen to Moses and the prophets. That wasn't good enough for him. You know why? Because he didn't listen to Moses and the prophets. And he felt like his brothers are probably as bullheaded as he was as selfish as he was, as living in the, the lifestyle he wanted to live in as he was, and therefore they probably wouldn't listen just like he didn't listen. Amen? But the rich man heard Moses and the prophets, but he, choose, he chose not to hear them. 
he probably felt like his brothers would make the same mistakes he did and end up where he did. That's why his plea was for the ones to go back from the dead. He thought that would have more impact. I know if he had a chance to go back and talk to his five brothers, he'd have a different story to tell. Amen? Sorry. Once you cross, there's no U-turns from heaven. Amen? He knew that he didn't repent, and he, he knew that they would if he could just go back and tell them. But that's not fair to the rest of us. See, God can't give everybody a second chance except me and you or anybody else. Or give him a second chance. Give his brothers a second chance when he didn't get a second chance. Amen? That's not the way God likes to operate. Amen? So God doesn't give a special invitation because your personal request is for your brothers or someone else. Amen? If they don't choose to live right, they have to stand for their consequences. In reality, look around. If what God and others have done for us on this side of eternity isn't enough to convince us of our personal experience choices with God in this life, then you're left with the consequences of your choices. If rich, sumptuous life and no feeling for your fellow man are the choices you made in this life? God has a choice of dictating your eternal indifference. You need to understand that on this side of eternity is where the choices need to be made. They not only need to be made in your mental capacity, but your heart has to be attached to them so that your feet and hands walk in accordance to the choices that you're making. Amen? I'm just thankful that God has the final say. Amen? Amen? I don't get to say who goes to heaven and who don't. Amen? I got enough on my plate just taking care of dude without judging everybody else and how they should live their lives. Amen? I don't need to take on the rest of the world. I'm only responsible for my personal, individual walk with God, just like all of you, and we all need to make those right choices. But now on the other hand, I feel the responsibility because of what God has done in my life to be responsible to help all those that need help in that choice area for themselves. Amen? They are eternal choices. I need to help people make the right ones based on what I've studied, based on what I've witnessed, based on what I've heard, based on what the Holy Spirit has talked to me about. I need to help others make those choices because they may have ignored what was said, what the Holy Spirit convicted them of, what the Holy Spirit would like to see happening in their life. If they ignore, ignored them, they have consequences to face also. Amen. I'd like to help those people. But I'm only one that can choose for me, and you're the only one that can choose for you. So choose wisely and seek godly counsel for your choices because they have eternal differences. And we need to make sure that our life is lined up 
not only with God's word, but with God's spirit, the two witnesses that Jesus left when he left this world, he left us two witnesses to guide us, his word and his spirit. And they both work in tandem to help you understand everything that needs to take place so that when you do cross to the other side, from this world to the other world, the eternity that you're blessed with or cursed with forever is where you want to be because you can't change once you get there. You need to make sure your life is right for, with everything around you. I know some people have made the choice initially, they, ah, it's not a big deal. But then they got to looking at others around them, their children, their family. They say, you know what? This guy was concerned about his family. Maybe I need to be concerned about my family. Well, you can tell them until you're blue in the face. I know because I have. But you need to live it in such a way that when they have an issue, when they have a prayer request, when they are hurting, they know who to call on. Think about those around you and the impact you're having on their lives while you're making the choices you're making as to how you're walking this life because that's going to determine the next life. Amen? But remember, Jesus never said it'd be easy, just worth it.